From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today, Nova Credit teams up with Alloy on inclusive business lending. The world's first green fintech taxonomy is launched. And the Sex Pistols launch God Save the Queen, a coin and NFT collection. All this and more on today's show. But first, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors. Let's face it, cards were not designed for online. Payments can take days to settle, hurting customer loyalty, while high fraud, clunky checkouts and expensive fees means millions in missed revenue. At TrueLayer, we've made instant payments available for businesses across Europe and the UK, so you can cut costs, fight fraud and get money moving faster. To learn more, visit truelayer.com forward slash payments. How will Web3 unlock the future financial services and change the way we think about money? Our first ever Web3 report takes a deep dive into the biggest conversation taking place in finance. Unpacking tokens, stablecoins, ESG, DAOs, DeFi, regulation, and so much more. We also take a look at the opportunities it presents for your business. For crypto natives and newbies, head to 11fs.com forward slash Web3 report to download it today and get Web3 ready. Welcome to episode 634 of Fintech Insider. My name is Guerra, and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by my 11FS colleague, Sim Rai, lead customer strategist. How are you doing, Sim? I'm doing very well, thanks. Guerra, how are you? Doing okay. I'm sad that you're not in London. You're all the way in Dubai, uh, but you should be coming back soon, right? Yeah, I will be. For a visit? Just a quick visit? Yeah. Quick, awesome. quick visit. <laughs> it's great to have you on the show, Sim. As always, we are joined by some very special guests. So making a welcome return to Fintech Insider, we've got Eric Johansson, the Fintech Editor at Verdict. Welcome back to the show, Eric. Uh, it's exciting time to be a Fintech Editor right now. Is that yes, no, yes, maybe? Uh, yeah, first off, th- thanks so much for have- having me back. It's always fun at my age to be invited back to things, especially as a journalist. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's always, it's always an interesting time to be a fintech editor. And I think these times now when we're starting to see market caps dropping from public trade funds and the market uncertainties and all these things happening, it's interesting and there's a lot of, a lot of drama going on. And, uh, as one of my editors is fond of saying, where is mystery? There's margin. And it's no one, if no one knows what's going to happen, there's a story to tell. So lots of drama. It's always fun. Absolutely. Love that. And we've got a FinTech Insider debut from Brian Bender, the VP of Strategic Alliances at Alloy. Welcome to the show, Brian. Uh, we're going to get into your news a little bit later. But can you give our listeners a quick recap on who Alloy is and what your role is there? Absolutely. And thank you very much, Guerra and Sim, for inviting me to the program. Alloy's identity decisioning platform covers compliance and fraud fighting needs, allowing financial institutions to make smart and seamless identity and risk decisions. Uh, we work with banks and fintech companies, connecting them to about 120 different data sources uh, for know your customer and money laundering and compliance data all through a single API, uh, which helps create a future without fraud. Uh, about 250 companies trust Alloy to help them like, verify identities, monitor transactions, and make credit decisions, which is what we're here to talk about today. So thank you very much for inviting me. 
That's great. Welcome to the show, Brian. Uh, all right, so let's dive into it. Before we do get really into the details of the news this week, we've got a bit of housekeeping. So last week we reported on the layoffs of 10% of staff at Klarna. So we reported on this story using a headline which implied that these layoffs were done directly on a pre-recorded video message. So while the initial announcement of layoffs to all staff was made via a pre-recorded video message, Klarna wishes to make it clear that the impacted employees were informed in personal one-on-one conversations. Uh, so that's that's really great. That's really great for um, you know their empathy around customers. Re- really good to hear that. So um, let's with that let's get into the news. So Nova Credit teams up with Alloy on inclusive business lending. Nova Credit has partnered with the identity solution platform Alloy to help lenders become more inclusive uh, and serve more customers across the credit spectrum without increasing the risk of fraud. The San Francisco-based Nova Credit launched in 2016 and helps credit-excluded customers access credit. Alloy's identities decision platform, as Brian mentioned earlier, covers compliance and fraud fighting, allowing financial institutions to make identity and risk decisions. With this partnership, Alloy is integrating Nova Credit's products into their credit underwriting decisioning capabilities um, on their platform so that lenders can have faster and easier access to credit risk and data analytics. So, Brian, let's come to you first on this. It's really, really great to have uh, you on the show and, and have uh, really great to see this, this really interesting partnership form. So can you tell us a little bit about how this partnership came about? Like who approached who uh, at the dance? Absolutely. Yes, Tommy and Misha, uh, CEOs of both the companies, uh, connected at an event. Couldn't say who actually approached who, but very quickly we recognized that we were both working towards the same mission. And that is that we are here to help all people gain access to the financial and the credit systems. And certainly uh, Nova Credit uh, helps with that and connected with our platform that enables uh, our 250 customers to underwrite credit for those who typically haven't been, uh, have access to credit, especially here uh, in the U.S., Like I said, we partner with many different data sources and we're always happy to have conversations with new data sources that wish to get connected with our platform. And uh, typically it would just start out with a quick conversation. And if we think there's something there, which there certainly was with Nova Credit, uh, we can advance it pretty quickly, which is uh, what happens here. So can you tell us a little bit about how this works in practice? What is the what is the personal what is the impact to your clients of this of this partnership? Sure. So what happens in practice is that our client would end up being a mutual client. So with a partnership like Nova Credit, uh, the end client would have a relationship with Nova Credit to license their data, as well as a license with Alloy in order to utilize the Alloy platform and all the services that it includes, including onboarding, transaction monitoring, and credit underwriting. And then within the platform, what happens is that after we've integrated Nova Credit, when a client goes to create a credit underwriting, what we would call a workflow, which is a series of rules about making a credit risk decision, uh, that client would be able to use Alloy's platform in a no-code way to very intuitively draw on various data sets that they may uh, have access to, like Nova Credit, in order to use Nova Credit's data to help them make an underwriting uh, risk decision. So uh, it's just a, it, by being technically integrated with Nova Credit, it means that our clients can use that data in their workflow as they're writing credit underwriting decisions uh, with very little to no uh, external technical help. 
Um, and you know, this when we talk about fraud and underwriting, does it, it sounds like this partnership really isn't? It's not so much about catching bad actors, more about proving that most are not, and including people in the economy. Really, Sam, I'm going to come to you. Nova Credit is quite well known for serving immigrants and, and migrants in the U.S. Um, how valuable is it to bring new migrants into credit reporting in this way? I think. I think it's super important, right? I think your credit score is one of the most important numbers in your financial life. And I think most immigrants start out as credit invisible. So when they arrive to a country without credit, um, they might come from a country that doesn't have any you know, credit reporting agencies at all. Or if they do, they might not even have um, the ability to transfer over. So, you know, the European Union has, I believe, no system for transferring credit uh, records across its internal borders. So I think it's hugely important because you're giving everyone the same access to opportunities. I think it's a win-win, um, quite frankly. Eric, do you agree this is a win-win for clients, uh, Alloy, Nova Credit as well? Like, what are your thoughts on this story? I mean, that's definitely a win for Alloy and Nova Credit. I hope it is. We'll see how the partnership t- turns out, won't we? But it's definitely a win for migrants to have these sort of solutions because just like Sim pointed out, if you are arriving to a new country, you don't really have a credit history or you may have struggled to get a credit history where you are. So, which means that you will not be able to access financial services in a way or the deals that you can access will be extremely expensive, which if you are fleeing from a, from, from a, another country or if you are just moving, it may not be something you can afford. So it's extremely encouraging to see a deal like this. I'm, I really like that we've touched on, on this migrant piece. You know, According to an MIT study, immigrants in the U.S. are more likely to start firms and create jobs compared to native-born citizens. So immigrants are more frequently involved in founding and companies at all scales, really. Um, so this, this sounds like, Brian, this sounds like it's, it's going to be a really great unlock for an untapped market, I guess, of potential clients for you guys. Brian, I'm going to come back to you. Uh, could we reach a point where migrants achieve a similar service to others when it comes to, you know, KYC? Is is this, is partnership inching us closer to that, to, to easier KYC processes um, with banks and, and other, other players? Uh, well, more broadly, we see that, you know, people without uh, history often struggle to get the most basic tasks uh, done, things like getting an apartment, at least cell phone plan, credit cards, student loans, things like that. So we think that that uh, is one of the main benefits of joining forces with Nova Credit to provide this alternative view. As I mentioned, Alloy's platform has uh, three main solutions. The first around onboarding, which is where typically those know your customer, any money laundering, fraud steps are taken uh, by uh, banks, fintechs, and credit unions. And we certainly work with a broad range of uh, industry-leading companies and data providers, companies like Centrelink, SoCure, um, and others in order to, uh, an ID analytics, uh, in order to help provide those KYC and specifically fraud fighting capabilities. We're also adding a couple of new partnerships with NeuroID and also with Prove that further take that ability to look at behavior to make sure that, you know, companies are identifying and preventing fraud in that first stage before getting to the credit underwriting stage, where we've talked about the benefits of NOAA credit for those that are uh, new to the U.S. 
That's that's really exciting. I mean, I, I, I'm going to come to you, Eric, about this concept of the BAS stack. So all these partnerships that we're seeing from various banking-as-a-service uh, providers, so like, for example, Alloy and Nova Credit uh, partnering, um, this sounds like a business world that looks very different to what the world of business looked like 20, 30 years ago, where everyone was just trying to merge and acquire other businesses to, to take together capabilities. I'm quite heartened to see really great, well, uh, promising partnerships like this um, crop up. Eric, are, are, what are your thoughts on, on the partnership ecosystem in, in fintech right now? Uh, what are you seeing um, in, in, in the work that you do? I mean, partnerships aren't really going anywhere. We, we are going to keep seeing partnerships as we, move, as we go for, forward. But I think it's also kind of ties in with the trend of embedded finance, where we are seeing a lot of companies that aren't necessarily financial services providers having financial services, and that's due to the companies that provide them with the technology so they can just plug in and play gently, have, have those kind of resolutions. And those companies, of course, want to plug in with others. So it might be that they need a KYC production, it might be that they need cybersecurity, they might need anything just to be compliant with the rules in that area. So of course, we're going to see more partnerships, but I think we are, in general, just going to see a more intertwined fintech landscape where more players are playing. Totally agree. And Brian, you've kind of alluded to other partnerships that you guys have in the works. Um, can you share any more about what uh, other partnerships that Alloy is planning to forge to serve your customers? Uh, sure. I think the two most exciting ones, which are very new, I just mentioned, are NeuroID and Prove. Uh, NeuroID is a brand new partnership. It's very exciting because it looks at the behavior of an applicant that is uh, in the process of filling out an application online. And it's looking using uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning to understand the pace using tabs, types, and swipes about how people are entering the data. And from that can make very accurate determinations about whether the applicant is real or whether they're pulling the data from a place other than their long-term memory. Uh, Prove is another very exciting partnership for us as they're connected with many mobile network operators and have very high quality uh, data. Um, that will help them determine if the person using a mobile device is actually the device. And while these sound like anti-fraud tools, and they certainly are, we actually see a bigger benefit for those that are typically underserved. What we actually notice is that when a fraud attack occurs, typically, you know, banks, credit, uh, fintechs, et cetera, will really kind of tighten down the parameters about which they will determine whether somebody is real or not. And that has a, a side effect, a byproduct of possibly locking out legitimate folks who are looking for access to the financial uh, system. And by using these two tools, we actually find that people and companies will be able to actually identify the fraud without necessarily tightening down their other uh, other parameters, if you will, and, and locking uh, people, legitimate people out. So that's why we're very excited about this. We're really trying to get at the fraud aspect itself while allowing those that need access to data products uh, to get it. Great. Thank you. All right, let's move on to the next story. Um, so the world's first green fintech taxonomy launched. So this is according to Finextra. The Green Digital Finance Alliance and Swiss Green Fintech Network have launched the world's first green fintech classification. The green fintech classification will look to enable a harmonized approach for policymakers, investors, and market actors to analyze and segment green fintech markets, according to the press release. The classification comes with eight separate categories covering everything from crowdfunding, investment, reg tech, and lending. In the accompanying report, they write, 
the time is right for the introduction of a standardized categorization of the green fintech market. Given how much the past year's fintech market evolution has been marked by a new wave of fintech solutions with green intent. So to hear more about this new classification, we reached out to Garrett Sinderman, the project director of the Green Digital Fintech Alliance, to ask, should we be concerned about fintech's green credentials? And how exciting is the green fintech market right now? Let's hear from him. Concern about green credentials is not an industry-specific question anymore. It's more a universal question that also applies to financial services. In a few years, it will be harder to identify the green fintechs even, as every business will have to incorporate climate and environmental dimensions. However, of course, similar to the financial institutions, just calling something green doesn't make it green. And whether tech or non-tech driven, financial services in the end are trust business. And as such, we should be always concerned about green credentials. How exciting the green fintech market is? We think it's very exciting. It's in a hot phase, of course, but it's also just at the start. Any nascent, fast-growing market is, of course, exciting. But here we have an intersection of even more market and science verticals and more complexity, of course, than earlier fintech propositions. But at the same time, therefore, also significantly wider-reaching opportunities. And we see that from massive interest across market actors. But foremost important, only through rapidly implemented innovation and massive funding will we be able to turn around climate change and loss of nature. And green fintech addresses both levels. That's why it's very exciting. Thank you for that. So let's dive into a little bit about green fintech and, and the environmental costs of fintech. Sim, is there is a financial the fintech industry specifically honest enough about uh, our impact on climate change? I'd say kind of. Um, I think definitely more can be done. And the reason I say kind of is because, okay, fine, you know, you, you can dig into the details when companies and like, banks and financial institutions report, right? You can look at their credit exposure to oil and gas and things like that. But I don't know if I would say it's transparent because you still have to dig for it. It's not openly there for people to say like, hey, I'm doing this kind of thing. Um, and also, you know, you have crypto mining, you know, countries were having energy outages because of things like that. So I think, I think more can be done. It's one thing to, to have it recorded and be open and be transparent, but there's another thing to actually take action on that, right? So are we actually going to stop financing new coal plants or new oil fields and things like that? Um, so I think there's definitely improvement there. I guess my question, um, and I guess this will be to Eric, is, you, you know, the classification comes with backing um, from the Swiss State Secretariat for the International Finance. So Eric, do you think this holds enough clout to become an industry standard? Well, I can say like this. Um, it's always very encouraging when we see initiatives like this, because that at least shows a will for more transparency, to show your green shops, as it were. Will it be used? That I'm slightly skeptical of, because there are eight different new cl classes of different types of green fintech things, everything from, from I think it was green in short, in short type to green invest, invest, investment companies. And I'm not sure if that is going to be widely used, because you must remember that we are an industry that still can't decide how we spell ourselves. I mean, we, we, we still see, is fintech spelled with a capital F or a capital T, or is it spelled with, with just a capital, capital F, or is it spelled with one word, two words? Is in short tech spelled with an E or, or two words? 
And I'm thinking, these are quite established things. If we can't even uh, agree on how to call those, I'm not really sure that these new classifications, backed as they might be by, by, by a, Sw a Swiss government organization, will be adopted by the wider industry. But, of course, I'm very happy to see at that there are at least initiatives in this realm. Well, I mean, I guess, are there any partnership requests to Alloy for environmentally conscious uh, tech integration? Or because I understand that, like in the last year, a lot, of, a lot of fintechs are really starting to, you know, uh, especially consumer-facing fintechs are starting to uh, have demand for green initiatives. Um, and as you're on the B two B side, right? So, are your clients coming to Alloy with any kinds of requests around around environmentalism or sustainability in that sense? Mm -hmm. We have not seen that to date yet in the nature of the partnerships that we have. So most of the partnerships uh, that we focus on are focused on, again, the basic requirements for know your customer, know your business, uh, watch list screening and things like that. We certainly are uh, on the lookout for various, uh, to broaden it out, you know, various environmental, social and governance related uh, data sets to the extent that that may be important for other purposes aside from uh, knowing customers and business and preventing fraud. Okay. And Sim, you're quite close to, you know, customer research and and UX research in general. Um, whilst it's good to see this kind of initiative be like coming from some kind of, I think it's almost like a regulatory type body. Like what, what, are, what are you seeing from customers? Like what are they demanding in this space? So I think the average consumer is growing more environmentally conscious, right? So consumers have stopped buying certain products because of ethical reasons or environmental concerns. And I think we definitely see this behavior among the younger generation. So like Gen Z are adopting, you know, more sustainable behaviors than any other groups, for example. So they'll stop purchasing certain brands or aligning themselves with certain brands because of the sustainability concerns. And I think what's important to note here is, you know, as wealth transfers to younger generations, sustainability and these kind of ethical considerations will need to become the standard and should become transparent because if it's getting passed down, it'll just become more important. So I think that's what consumers want and it's up to, to banks and financial institutions to kind of meet those needs. Yeah. Um, Eric, we hear about this kind of, you know, uh, environmentalism and, and there's there's fintechs coming out with wooden cards and, uh, you know, carbon uh, offsetting features here and there. Like, what are your thoughts about the, have you heard the, the concept greenwashing and what are your thoughts around this and, and how much are you, are you investigating this in the news that you see? I mean, just like you said, there are a lot of fintech companies out there who are, are trying to at least... Show, show themselves to, to be green. So like, there are, like I said, there's a, there is at least one wooden card and that company, which name escapes me, they have told me that they aren't cutting down more trees to do the cards than they, than they are saving with, with their services. It's a tricky one because I'm not really sure if those companies are actually having that much of an impact because... Yes, they're very good intentional. And again, like we, I've said on this podcast before, it's fantastic to see these initiatives because at least it keeps it in the public realm. But if they themselves are having a big impact, I do not do not know. And, and sadly, I haven't seen that much reporting about it. Maybe that is something I should take on board and 
push my team to do more of because usually we just see the big announcement that if you pay X amount of money with this credit card, we will plant a tree. We don't really know, we haven't really followed that up and seen how many trees they have actually planted. We haven't gone out to see where they have planted those trees. So uh, it's a tricky one. I agree. I think the concept of greenwashing really is using environmentalism to sell things, really, uh, um, and you know, glossing over the real the real impact. I think that moves like this, you know, having like a the world's first green fintech taxonomy, I think is, in my opinion, like a, a good step in the direction um, of, of I guess environmentalism. In that, like, we're stepping away from individualism and, you know, putting a lot of the onus on climate change on the individual and shifting that responsibility to corporations and businesses and fintechs in, in this case, really, like classifying them and, and giving them various classifications. Um, because that's ultimately, in, in my opinion, um, actually, you know, it's definitely backed as well that that, that larger organiza- organizations and, and corporations are the ones who are contributing the most to climate change um, in, in the worst ways. So, shifting the onus onto them and and you know getting away from blame and and kind of like ca- starting with classifications like this like taxonomy like this i think could be a step in the right direction but uh maybe maybe next time we'll, we'll get a we'll try and get Greta Thunberg on um uh, uh for 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 this episode <laughs> all right so we're going to take a quick pause here while we hear from our sponsors we'll be back shortly <laughs> Did you know that the majority of people are investing in cryptocurrency through a taxable account when they could be using an IRA, that's an individual retirement account, and avoiding or deferring those taxes? With Alto Crypto IRA, you can invest in crypto without tax headaches, creating a free account in only minutes. Choose from over 150 coins and invest with as little as $10. That's right, only 10 bucks. No setup charges and no account fees. To open an Alto Crypto IRA with as little as $10, just go to altoira.com forward slash insider. That's A-L-T-O-I-R-A.com forward slash insider. So we're going to go out on a limb here and assume that you're enjoying this podcast. We're also going to assume that, like us, you're a fintech nerd and that our podcasts, live events, video series and documentaries keep you tapped into everything that's happening across fintech and connected to the fintech community. So if you're interested in creating content that informs and entertains, then you should definitely chat to our media team and get in touch on sponsors at 11fs.com. Welcome back. Let's get into our next story. So this is from the Financial Times. African growth promise tempts investors. So a list of Africa's fastest growing companies is topped by Kenyan tech disruptors alongside Nigerian commodity traders. And a report was recently released by the the Financial Times, um, really just kind of talking about the excitement and, and uh, in this market. So for context, African startups raised about $5 billion in private markets, notably in venture capital in 2021, according to African Private Equity and Venture Capital Association, AVCA, and Britta Bridges. So as of February 18th of this year, 18 startups in Africa have all, had already raised over $1 billion through 130 deals, according to Max Collivier and the team over at Africa, The Big Deal. So for context, to give you a bigger picture about this, this took seven weeks in 2022 to reach a billion dollars of investment on the continent, uh, across the continent, compared to last year, uh, where it took 21 weeks, and 2019, where it took 46 weeks. So seven weeks in 2022, 21 weeks in, 29, in, in 2021, and 46 weeks in 2019 to raise a billion dollars. 
that is that is quite that's that's blindingly fast and 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 you know exponentially growing. So fintech represents almost half of funding raised to date. Last year marked an explosion of funding in the fintech sector, particularly. Uh, so this list is topped by uh, Kenyan B2B retail and e-commerce platform Wasoko, formerly known as SokoWatch, uh, with fintech player Flowcash in second place. So it is known is a known fact that the big four are attracting the most investment and attention on the continent. So startups in Nigeria, Kenya, South Africa, and Egypt have raised 83% of all funding across the continent, signed 70% of all deals, uh, uh, all deals that are above a million dollars since 2019. Uh, so that's the, the, this is this is like pretty pretty insane numbers. So let's zero in on one of the most prolific market investors on the continent, which is Y Combinator YC. So YC, um, you know, since since entering the market um, in Africa, have raised one point three billion dollars. Uh, so fifty percent of YC backed Af- uh, startups in Africa are in Nigeria, uh, with Egypt boasting the second highest number of YC backed startups, making t- up twelve percent. So Nigeria is quite is a bit of a juggernaut in this space. Um, and a more interesting stat here is like 65% of YC-backed startups in Africa are in the financial services space. So over half of YC-backed startups specifically are in fintech. This is quite a phenomenal finding. Um, so based on the rankings by the Financial Times, has financial services uh, and fintech become Africa's most dominant industry? I'd say like absolutely. But Eric, I'm going to come to you. Um, you. You've had a chance to dig into uh, data and news across the continent. What are you, what are you finding um, in this space? To your point about whether or not it is the most dominant industry, it's definitely one of the most dominant industries. But like that FT, FT story pointed out, we also have commodities and mining. But when it comes to technology, yes, fintech is leading the way when it, in, in Africa. Uh, and, and I, yes, I did actually manage to dig up a little ex, extra in anticipation of this conversation because a lot of the data that that story referred to was a little bit old. So I wanted to find something that was made more up-to-date. And what I found is that it seems like fintech investments, not tech investments, but fintech investments in Africa is almost on track to having almost the same levels as they would as they had last year. So according to Global Data, which is the parent company of Verdict, in 2021, fintech companies in in Africa raised uh, $1.1 billion across 75 deals. Now, so far, as of today, in 2022, Global Data has recorded that there have been the fintech companies in Africa has, ra- has raised $547 million across 31 venture capital rounds. So, and that we're not even halfway. So, it's very getting very, it gets getting very close to that nice half, halfway mark where it's almost at the same level. As we saw as we saw last year, so it looks very promising. But with the market uncertainties that we're seeing, who kn- who knows? But yeah, we'll keep our fingers crossed. Sim, is this? I, I know you're not like a super like deep expert in Africa, but you have quite a solid understanding of, of the global south. Is this? Is this? Uh, are we really just seeing a solidifying of the rise of the global south with numbers like this? I think so. I think it's huge. You know, there's a stat out there that, you know, a fifth, um, back in 2017, a fifth of sub-Saharan Africa's population was online. And in 2020, that had risen to just under a third. I think that's so impactful because, you know, having more of an online population opens up so many opportunities for people that become online and enables them to do so much more. So I think stats like that are really important. I think we do need to bear in mind, though, that 
What's key here is that owning a smartphone is an important enabler in sub-Saharan Africa for, you know, becoming a regular mobile internet user. So whilst companies can benefit from this new, you know, online population, it's more about consumers being regular mobile internet users that will lead to the success of that. Mm-hmm. And and companies serving these customers really in, in meaningful, thoughtful ways. I think I'm a big fan of competition in the space. I think we need to see more of it uh, so that we don't have, you know, juggernauts rise and, and dominate. I think, you know, how, how much of this, uh, Brian, I'm, I'm going to come to you. I don't, I don't know how much you, you can comment on this, but um, with Alloy being a, a B2B SaaS company, sorry, BAS company, um, are you seeing any any interest from African startups or even global South startups trying to enter and break into the U.S. market uh, via you guys or working with you guys at all? Well, I'm not familiar with the statistics that you were just speaking to. What I can say is we are absolutely seeing an interest from existing clients uh, as well as data partners, uh, potential data partners coming to Alloy, expressing an interest in how they uh, gain access to the African markets. So it's definitely something that we're pursuing and we're looking at here. And I think it's uh, very much in line with uh, what you're reporting uh, here about the growth of online users and fintech in general. Very consistent. That's that's great. I mean, you know, we spoke to to Misha recently from Nova Credit, and uh, he he mentioned that Nova Credit themselves have are actually reporting and gathering credit bureau data from uh, African markets like like Nigeria and Kenya. Um, so that already would open them open up immigrants uh, from these countries into the states. I wonder if maybe uh, there's going to be uh, you know the other way around uh, kind of kind of migration. Um, but yeah, so I think I think it's definitely like it's very exciting. Eric, I'm gonna we're gonna come to you. Um, have you seen an influx of stories about African fintechs landing in your inbox lately? No, and that's the sad thing because we now see like like I like I said, we are seeing this absolute wave of fintech investments, but no one is reaching out to me, and I I I feel, I feel like I'm miss, missing out. So if there are any interesting fintech startups or any bigger fintech companies in Africa that are raising money or doing something absolutely exceptional, reach out to me. I would like to know. Eric, I will reach out to you personally uh, (laughs) because I I know quite a lot about about what's going on on the continent. I think, yeah, like that's that's actually a really good contrast because, Eric, you you were reporting quite heavily on Europe and and Europe is, is... obviously geographically quite close to Africa, but also historically, you know, the colonial past um, is is quite, there's there's still ties between countries like France and, and Francophone Africa and, and England and countries like Uganda, where I'm from, and Kenya. And so there's quite a lot of investment uh, excitement around that space. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of investment activity really, um, you know, I, 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 I would, I would say that, that, um, that you're going to definitely see more stories, Eric, coming up with uh, with all this this growth that's happening in the market, especially now, you know, with the economic downturn. Uh, usually, a lot of um, during or right after a recession is when we see the most uh, exciting companies crop up. So, like for example, Uber and Airbnb and all these companies really grew right after the recession. So, I'm curious to see what this looks like in Africa. All right, all right. Let's move to the next story. Um, Embattled payments company Bolt is start, is cutting one third of their staff. So this is from the, from Bloomberg. So payment startup Bolt is eliminating about two hundred and fifty employees, according to per people familiar with the company. That number is equivalent to about one third of Bolt's workforce. In a message to staff, Bolt CEO Maju Kurvilia 
wrote that the company was making cuts as part of a broader restructuring. Uh, so the quote, it is no secret that the market conditions across our industry and tech sector are changing. Crevillia wrote in a message which also was posted to the company's blog. Bolt was one of the, was most recently valued by investors at $11 billion, a price tag that made it one of the most valuable startups in the U.S. The company's software aims to provide retailers with one-click online checkout options. Bolt has run into trouble recently. So the startup was sued by um, its most prominent customer, which, which claimed that the technology did not work as promised. Um, so aside from that, that that piece of the story, um, you know, of of, of their litigation uh, that they're that they're under right now, um, this seems to be quite a concerning trend that we're seeing, like across fintech and and in across the board in general. Like, is this becoming? You know, are many companies making huge layoffs? Uh, I'm, I'm going to come to you, Eric. Is it is this something that we're seeing quite across the board? Yes, it's definitely something. You saying across what you I mean? You mentioned earlier. Today, today, when you do your housekeeping, the Klarna has lay off or will lay off 10% of their work staff. And we will see things like this going further in the next few, in the next few months, as long as these market uncertainties continues. And it's not just going to be that. It will be uh, a slowing down of VC investment. Already, already uh, research company at FinTech, FinTech Global is expecting that we'll see a slowdown of roughly 7% in VC funding in the FinTech space this year, which, if, it, if you if compare it to 2020, is still higher than that, that year's level, but it's definitely going to be a marked slowdown, uh, which also means that companies are going to have a hard time being funded, especially new startups. We'll probably also see a, quite a few companies following in the footsteps of Fast and having to close up shop. So it's going to be, it is going to could be quite dramatic, I think. But that also means that there are going to be lots of engineers and developers who may be scooped up by other companies. I did see that Revolut, for instance, was looking for, for new engineers. So hopefully there are other companies in this sector that can help the people who have lost their jobs get employment elsewhere. Yeah, there's definitely, like, I've seen so many... Google sheets and and spreadsheets floating around with names and and job titles and people at all these companies who are looking for work. I'd say that there is actually a website, so an employment tracker, layoffs.fyi, who are are tracking really the the, the jobs that are that are being cut and also offering a place for people to. to hire the talent. I know at 11FS, I think recently we saw someone shared a, spread, a spreadsheet with names of people um, at, at some companies who are open to recruitment. So I think that this could be good for um, startups who and companies who are ramping up their operations. But Sim, I'm going to come to you. Um, what, what what do you make of, of a story like this and uh, and the, you know, the wider economic climate that, that's making this backdrop? I think um, like Eric mentioned it's definitely something that we've been seeing across the board, you know, with Klarna last week, um, you know, we had the CEO of Uber inform employees, um, I think a month or so ago that hiring will now be treated like a privilege, you know, Meta stated that reduced hiring for most mid-level and senior roles. And we all know what happened with better.com. So I think we're definitely seeing this um, across the board. And I think there are a lot of macroeconomic factors at play too. You know, we have, um, especially in Europe, we have the war in Ukraine unfolding. So we have a shift in consumer sentiment as well. We have an increase in inflation and a really volatile stock market and potentially, you know, a likely recession. So I think all these factors are intertwining and coming into play to lead to something like this. Brian, in the US, um, 
where you're you're in the West Coast, right? So that's really Silicon territory. Um, are you are you seeing and hearing stories like this more increasingly? Well, I think uh, we I I mostly work for New York City based companies. So I live in Los Angeles. I certainly do have a lot of friends and colleagues in the Bay Area and things like that. Uh, but uh, you know, in general, I think as Eric was referencing, uh, times like this. They've changed significantly. Uh, the market conditions have changed significantly in the past three months, and certainly in the past six overall. Um, and that creates challenges and opportunities. And I think the companies that are prudent uh, and and you know take a forward looking view about what they need to do are are the wise ones. And for those uh, who may be uh, out uh, on one of those spreadsheets or looking for work, this is also a great opportunity with many other companies. We know historically that companies that are founded during very difficult times like this uh, end up being some of the strongest companies in the years moving forward. So uh, it's also a great time of opportunity. I think definitely like that's a, that's the silver lining to, to think about. Um so just to come back to Bolt, uh, you know, Bolt was founded in 2014. They garnered a lot of national attention uh, for giving employees things like Fridays off, so four-day work week, um, tweet storms from their colorful co-founder, Ryan Breslow, uh, who earlier this year actually um, stepped down as CEO. And, uh, you know, he 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 claimed in a series of tweets that the Silicon Valley's elite is a boys club full of mob bosses. And, you know, th- th- that aside, Bolt was you know, quite quite a promising it is quite a promising business and, and has a, a quite a interesting um value proposition that, that they've put out into the market. I think that companies like Bolt are have hired quite quite aggressively um in the in the last few years whilst uh capital was cheap and uh VC rounds were were larger. Um but now that we're in a tricky macroeconomic climate, fundraising seems to not really be an option. So um Many startups really are, are having a difficult time raising during during this 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 uh, this period. Uh, Sophie Winwood was on on the show last week, um, and you know she alluded to the fact that that we're potentially going to be seeing more stories like this. Um, Eric, what uh, role do you think this plays in companies trying to raise funding right now, or, or is funding going to be something that is 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 going to be harder to raise? Are do you, are you seeing VCs stepping up? What what areas even what sectors of fintech or outside are you seeing as as rising during this this difficult time? The investors that I've been talking to, they have essentially said that yeah, we're still looking looking to invest, but we will be looking a little bit closer at the burn of those companies. How, what are the where costs? Uh, how, what are the growth? Are they growing organically or is it, is, it, is it inflated? So it will be very much about making sure that um, the companies that, that they invest in can actually survive the, this crisis. And what and what I've said earlier, like if you are a seed or early or early stage startup in this space, you will probably have quite a harder t- time in, in the next in the next few months or next maybe the next next year. Uh, more established companies that have kind of proved to their investors and the backers that they have uh, that are gro- gro- that have a nice growth, that are not burning more cash than expected, they will continue to have nice, nice big latest, let's say, funding. But it will also be interesting to see. I think one of the big tests I'm look- looking for is that ru- big rumored Klarna race. That has been in the news in the, or uh, running across the rumor mill for the past few weeks. That said that Klarna might get a, I think it's twenty five percent or something reduction in their valuation, going from four to six to thirty. 
Sebastian Simatakowski, the CEO, has said that he will be surprised, if I remember correctly, but uh, that is going to be one of the big tests, tests in, in my eyes, of where the se sector is heading and what the state of it is. I think, yeah, you're right. I think that um, down rounds, we're going to see down rounds, right? Like like you said, for Klarna, uh, with, with valuations dropping and dipping. But like, I, I'd, I'd say a sector, before we move on, I, I want to just like, Shout out to 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 crypto really and DeFi, uh, a sector that that seems to be like rising uh, through the ashes of this of this economic downturn. You know, like a sixteen Z announcing their four point five billion dollar fund that they're going to invest quite aggressively into seed and early stage startups. So um, that that is one area that I I I would predict we're going to see a lot more. Um, people, uh, talent, and and money flocking to potentially. All right. Um, Let's move on to the next segment. So this is a segment we like to call stories we didn't have time to cover. Uh, so we quickly round up some stories from the week that we didn't really get a chance to go deep in on, uh, but they do deserve a shout out. So Sim, do you want to get us started? Yes, of course. So the first one is from Altvi, Bank of America boss Knox Crypto. So the CEO of the second biggest bank in the US is the latest high profile financial services executive to strike a blow against crypto. When asked by a Yahoo journalist if he felt the bank was missing out on the next big thing by not making a major play in crypto, he replied, no. Um, Moynihan, I don't know if I'm saying that right, please correct me if I'm wrong, um, who has been the bank's CEO for the past 12 years, said regulatory constraints prevented the bank from making a major crypto push. He said, the reality is that we can't do it. By regulation, we are not really allowed to engage. We are not engaging in accounts for people in cryptocurrency. We are not allowed to. And instead of making a concerted push into crypto, he said, our big thing is helping consumers in America have a successful financial life. And, you know, can't argue with that. Um, helping consumers have a successful financial life is important and also ties into a comment that the president of the European Central Bank made, I think, earlier this month, um, Lagarde, who said that crypto was worth nothing and called on it to be regulated. So I think it's quite interesting to see the negative comments about crypto from two, you know, high profile finance executives. It comes at a tough time for the crypto market, you know, with the likes of Bitcoin and others um, plummeting from last year's peak. So we'll see if the industry faces, you know, continues to face more pressure for more regulatory scrutiny. Great. Thank you. Varro, first chartered neobank, could run out of money by the end of the year. Regulatory filings show. So this came from a fintech insider, actually, a regular on the show, Jason Mikula, recently reported, reported this in Fintech Business Weekly. So Varro had the unique distinction of obtaining a national bank charter, a process that reportedly cost nearly $100 million and took three years. But according to Fintech Business Weekly's John Mikula, uh, it looks like it may not have been worth it. So analyzing the regulatory filing, filings, Varro has struggled to build a meaningful loan book by lending to its customers. In Q1 2022, uh, earnings call report, um, it indicated that $9.4 million in credit card balances, uh, but Varro's card offering is is secured and does not generate uh, interest income, nor significant fee uh, income apart from any apart from interchange, really. Varro did report about $3.6 million in other revolving loans to customers, an average of less than $1 outstanding per deposit account. So based on the bank's Q1 2022 equity um, of $263 million 
and a burn rate of $84 million. It could run out of money by the end of the year. So Varro's last raise saw them valued at $2.5 billion. But based on Varro's approximately $22.5 million in revenue in Q1 and at a 5x multiple, this would value the company right now at $450 million. So going from $2.5 billion to $450 million, that's, that's quite, quite, a, quite, a, quite a knock. Um, so all this puts immense pressure on Varro to cut costs and raise additional capital, according to Mikula. So, um, you know, Varro was very much uh, touted a while ago, really, and and praised for being the bank that the, the neo bank that got their own charter. You know, like I said, a hundred million dollars is how much that cost. But the long-standing neo bank uh, and bank sponsor model is often seen as as an early go to market strategy for neo banks. Uh, so, you know, the likes of Monzo have done this, Chime in America, Monzo even in America have done this, you know, partnering with with other banks to offer their services. Um, but this, but could this be sustainable um, uh, rather than like as, as an operating model, as opposed to a neobank obtaining a charter? Um, you know, Mikula's piece really, really dives into that a little bit more. But I'm going to just read... Um, some so a comment we 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 got from you and our CTO uh, in in one of our Slack channels where we get to nerd out about fintech news. Um, so Ewan says uh, we seem to have lost sight over the past decade as to how banks make money. They do it by lending and then making sure that people get their money back. You have a full license to do that if you want to take deposits to assist in the lending process. Very few neobanks are actually doing any lending. Everyone is quite fixated on payments. So this is, I, I wish I could read it in Ewan's voice and, 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 and accent because uh, he, he has a lot more uh, fervor than I do. But I, I really like the point that, that the fact that we've lost sight of the fact that banks make money by lending. And, and with Varro's lending book being so so small, um, you know, it's, no, it's a no-brainer that, that they could run out of money in the, in the next few months. All right, um, let's move on to the next uh, final segment. So let's bring everyone back for the final story of the week, uh, which is our and finally story. So the Sex Pistols announced a commemorative God Save the Queen coin and NFT. This is from Crack Magazine. Uh, so to mark the Queen's Platinum Jubilee and anniversary of the of the famously anti-monarchy single, the Sex Pistols have announced a nickel-plated pistol mint commemorative coin. The piece features artwork by Jamie Reed with his Sex Pistols Union Jack design on the side of the coin and the Reed's likeness of the Queen with a safety pin lip piercing on the reverse. The commemorative coin also comes with a digital counterpart. So the NFT collection will feature a selection of designs which are allocated randomly upon minting. Uh, And for the NFTs, they are working with Palm Network, which offers a more sustainable option for NFT releases. The God Save the Queen coin is available via the Sex Pistols website for a limited period throughout June 2022. Um, So Eric, you and I are both in England right now. Um, We've got the mega long weekend coming up to celebrate Queen Lizzie. Are we going to see more commemorative NFTs crop up like this? I mean, I... As we were... Just before we were speaking, I got got an email from OKX... But it's also launching an exclusive NFT collection. So yeah, we're gonna see a lot of these cash grabs. <laughs> but and but it, I think that the Sex Pistol ones stands out from the crowd, mostly because nothing says happy anniversary like commemorating one of the most massive middle fingers that have ever been extended against the Queen. I think I think just that's just hilarious. Uh, one thing that I'm not really hundred percent sure of though with this coin, because I've been trying to figure it out on on their on Sex Pistols' own website, because they ha- is whether or not you will get a physical coin as well, because they are selling physical coins as well, but I'm not entirely sure whether or not 
that physical coin will be tied to uh, an actual NFT. Might just be me who has struggled struggled to read it. But if it is tied to, to something physical, well, at least that NFT has some kind of value. Yeah. Um, Brian, as, as an American, seeing news like this out of the UK, uh, what do you make of, of Brit's fascination with the monarchy and, and punk bands like, like the Sex Pistols? Well, it brought me way back. <laughs> I think uh, it almost reminded me, yeah, maybe I should go back and listen to that song again. But I certainly uh, wish uh, all the British the best uh, long weekend. And, uh, you know, congratulations on uh, what is a truly remarkable jubilee coming up. Awesome. Um, and Sim, what did you have any thoughts when you when you saw this story initially uh, with with the Sex Pistols about about or the Queen in general? No, I didn't. I just thought it was funny. I think we are seeing a bit of an influx of um, kind of like not going to say silly, but you know, fun things like this. I'm sure we'll see more to come, for sure. All right. Um, so for more punk-infused podcasting, go check out our recent After Dark podcast, which was recorded live from New York City, where we asked, are DeFi and embedded finance the punk and hip-hop of financial services? Alrighty, so let's let's wrap up the show here. So thank you so much to my guests. Um, really great to have you here. Where can people find out more about you, Sim? You can find me on LinkedIn or at sim.rai at 11invest.com. Awesome. Eric? You can find me on Twitter at Eric Johansson LJ, or you can find my daily news stories on verdict.co.uk. Awesome. Thank you. Brian? You can find me on LinkedIn as well as brian at alloy.com for email. And as for me, you can find me on Twitter at notguera and also 11FS, a lot of the cool stuff we're working on, 11FS.com. Thank you for listening. You can join into the conversation on social media or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thank you so much and goodbye.